Blog Talk Radio. All right, so now we are live with everybody. We are live with Facebook Live, we are live with the Vibe Radio Network, and uh, yeah, hope everybody has a good couple of weeks. We have uh, been on our toes, let's put it that way. It's been, uh, been good. Been good, been busy. Been good, been busy. Uh, but yeah, we're happy to be back here uh, to... Uh, do not eat the plant. Yeah, to follow up on our um, our little adventure that we had at the beginning of the month. So, yeah, you know that we're uh, tonight we're talking about haunted Charleston, and well, we spent the first weekend of this month actually up in Charleston, uh, just doing research. It wasn't all research. It was fun. Vacation with research. Yes. Ah, and you also noticed that we are back up in our traditional, our original. We're in the office. We're back, we're, we're back in the official broadcasting studio because it's just too warm to have a fire tonight. Yes. So. And you get to see my fun new decorations because I yes. have way too much fun with Dave and Pat Luger. Yes. If you can see, Beth had fun. These are intended to be, um, she's getting a, an early start on her Halloween decorations. Yes, it's only March, but it's always Halloween here. So. There's a lot of hot gluing that's going to happen, so I need to start now because I will inevitably burn my fingers. Yep. <laughs> but we're going to have a little theme this uh, year of... Uh, Poison Ivy buys the uh, plant shop from... Little, little Shop of Horrors. So all kinds of uh, spooky plants. Oh, and yes, there's the kitten. Kittens everywhere. Ah, kittens but, getting into trouble. Yep. Seriously. <laughs> but yeah, so I hope everybody's had a uh, yeah had a good last couple of weeks. Hope everybody's been getting out and enjoying the uh, warmer weather. I know things certainly have been picking up for us. Yeah. <laughs> We've been having tours left and right. I I actually we got a call tonight and I have a tour at 10 a.m. tomorrow now. Yeah. So don't do uh, don't do morning <laughs> ghost tours very often, but hey, why not? That's what they wanted, so that's what we got. Cheers to that. Yes. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, we were at Hanover Tavern um, yeah. for an investigation on Saturday night. Yep. Uh, which went really well. There, um, we had discovered a new ghost in the tavern. So um, we're working on finding out some more information about that one and trying to get them to communicate more. And I don't know if you can teach a ghost how to use the equipment, but help the ghost figure out how to use the equipment to communicate with us. Yeah. So, but yeah, it seems. You know, based on early experiences, that it might actually be a more recent spirit. Yes. Yeah. So, so since the tavern has been uh, remodeled, so we're yeah. gonna or restored. That's the word I want. Uh, so hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to get some more information um, from that spirit from upcoming investigations. Yeah. Huh. But so yeah, so we'll go ahead and dive into. Uh, We'll keep an eye on them. <laughs> they like to eat the sunflower. Yeah, so we'll have to keep an eye on that. Yeah. All right, so um, Charleston. Uh, Charleston, South Carolina, even amongst other American cities that were founded during our colonial time, this one has an exceptional amount of history along every street and tucked down every alleyway. Their alleyways are really cool, by the way. It's no surprise that all of this history comes with a hefty side of the paranormal. What might be a little surprising is that a city whose nickname is the Holy City has so many people that are willing to share their spirited tales. Yeah, there's a lot of ghost and paranormal activities that you could do while you were there. Um, in the heart of 
in the heart of town, there was almost, there was all kinds of paranormal stuff, almost on every street corner. Yes. Uh, so how Charleston came to be known as the Hilly City is because as you walk the streets, you start to catch a glimpse of the city skyline from the water, and it is dotted with a tremendous number of people for the houses of worship. Many of these holy houses feature towering spires that rise above the other awe-inspiring architecture, and they're very notable in their own right. But even these houses of God are not immune to paranormal phenomena, which brings us to our first tale. This one I found a lot fun because there's a connection here to Richmond. Yep. So this is the Unitarian Church Cemetery. Uh, this is one of the many graveyards and cemeteries across Charleston that is expected for a city that's got history going back to the 1600s. Uh, but this one really does stand out because the Unitarian uh, Church Cemetery is meticulously kept for all the visitors that come to experience its grandeur, but it's unique because the vines and the trees that managed to overtake some of the graves in previous generations have been accepted as a part of the landscape that makes this burial ground so special today. Uh, visitors will notice that the paths are well-kept, but much else has been overgrown. And those who keep up the cemetery actually do this uh, to show that the dead are reconnecting with nature and it's a symbol of their reunion with nature. The Unitarians wanted the cemetery to look this way so that nature and the dead single again. Now, this church is one of the oldest in the city of Charleston. It was first built in 1772. The first structure, however, was not designed to stand the test of time, let alone the rigors of the war. So during the Revolutionary War, it was used for barracks, and a lot of the church ended up getting heavily damaged. And that caused it to get replaced in 1854. The structure that stands today is now on the historic register, and it's known as the second oldest church in Charleston. Now, the hauntings here are kind of unique. Um, the most popular legend in Charleston is actually about a young girl named Anna Ravnell. Uh, while Anna's tale is rooted in the legend, the Ravnell uh, name actually is prevalent in the city of Charleston today. There's a very modern Arthur Ravnell Jr. Bridge that dominates the skyline at the north side of Charleston Harbor. There's a small town of Ravnell just to the west of Charleston. And there's a Ravnell Waterfront Park and many businesses in the greater Charleston area that bear the Ravnell name. So it's very prominent. But for Anna, this goes back to 1827. She was 14 years old, a little young for marriage, but because she was the daughter of a wealthy family, she was already dowered to a prosperous and aristocratic young man. But Anna had other ideas. She was picky. She was romantic. She wanted to be in love, not have an arranged marriage. So she fell in love, actually, with a young man, man who was a soldier stationed at Fort Moultrie, located just across Charleston Harbor. Now, Edgar Perry was 18 when he met Anna, and although he was several years older, he was instantly smitten. She was smart, she was cultured, and she had just enough getting to keep him smiling. When Anna's father realized that she was seeing a soldier, he tried desperately to keep them apart. He tried locking Anna in the house. He tried sending goons to discourage Edgar from pursuing her, but the pair always found a way to be together, even if it meant having Clandon a uh, clandestine meeting in a local cemetery, the Unitarian Church Cemetery. Now, in December of 1828, Edgar was transferred away from Fort Moultrie, and it still suspected that maybe Anna's father had pulled some strings to get this to happen. Regardless of the reason, Edgar was gone, and Anna's father began to finally relax. Then Anna was stricken with fever, possibly the dengue fever that it was sweeping down through the southeastern coast at that time. 
Her sister was able to get word to Edgar that Anna was gravely ill, but before Edgar could get to her, she passed away. Poor Edgar was devastated, and he came as soon as he could. He attempted to attend the funeral, but her father had anticipated this and had him turned away. Now, his, her father was determined to keep the two separated, even in death. So he actually uh, purchased six plots of um, burial plots at the Unitarian Church. He had Anna buried in one of them, and the other five were actually dug to a depth of three feet. Uh, now, they're all unmarked, so Edgar could never figure out which one was actually Anna. Spiteful. Very spiteful. Um, Edgar was never properly able to pay his final respects to her, and if you go through the service records of all the soldiers stationed at Fort Moultrie, I need to drink more apparently, you'll find that a young man named Edgar A. Perry was there for about 13 months from November 1827 to December of 1828. You'll also find that Perry enlisted under a pseudonym. The real name of the soldier was Edgar Allen Poe, our homeboy. Yep. And this has been verified. This, this, is, been this, verified. this is definitely a historical fact. Yep. And if you want to double check that for yourself, you could even go to the uh, Edgar Allan Poe Museum's mm -hmm. uh, website, and they have various little blogs on there, including one of uh, Edgar's life, mm -hmm. his, his timeline during his life. And uh, it has that period of Fort Moultrie there where he was enlisted under Edgar Perry. Yep. So a deeper dive into the historical records muddies the water between the verified facts and the debatable legends. It is a known fact that while Pope was at Fort Moultrie, he befriended a conchologist named Edmund Ravnell, who kept a house on nearby Sullivan's Island. Some believe that Ravnell was the inspiration for William Legrand in the character in one of Poe's stories, The Golden Bug, or The Gold Bug, excuse me. Many also believe that Poe's final complete poem, Annabelle Lee, was written for Anna, Anna Ravnell. Now, it's here where we start to divide the bits of the fact and the legend. Anna probably was not the daughter of Edmund Randolph, Ravel, excuse me. Ravenel. Ravenel. I just said Randolph and that was not right. No. Because <laughs> we had one of those here in town. Uh, now, despite the verified connection between Edmund and Edgar, Edmund would have only been about 16 years old when Anna was born. So that's the reason why we don't think he was her father. Uh, Edmund did have older brothers, however, and the Ravenel family tree has many branches. So we, uh, it's kind of hard to tell whether they are on the same family branch or somewhere else. Now, Edmund and Anna were part of um, a very large, intimate family, and so it's possible that they were cousins, second cousins. Something we like just that. don't know where they are. Uh, it said that when Edgar and Anna's romance came to a head, Edmund closed his house on Sullivan's Island and worked exclusively from his office in downtown Charleston. Perhaps this move reflects some bitterness at the warming of romance. Um, yeah, even if uh, Edmund wasn't necessarily Anna's father, he may have still been somebody that was like, oh. This is not good for my family. Yeah. No, I thought you were cool, but now you're interested in my cousin? Mm, yeah. No. Or my niece or something like that? No, can't yeah. have that. Yeah. So we might never know exactly the point where the fact and legend meets, but Anna's spirit is present and restless all the same. She makes appearances in the cemetery searching for a love that changed her life. Anna's spirit is not the only one in the cemetery. As a matter of fact, there are a few individuals that seem to be keeping her company. Now, there was a couple who was visiting the cemetery for the first time and was unfamiliar with the Unitarian philosophy of letting the dead mingle with nature. So they were struck by what they thought was a lack of care 
As they were commenting on this to one another, an old man showed up and he was using a very old lawnmower to mow the ground. He acknowledged the couple, but he didn't pause in his work. The couple continued to walk around the cemetery, but there was something bothering them about their interaction with the old man. As they moved to continue their exploration inside the historic church, they noticed that the old man was now resting on one of the cemetery benches. When they finished looking around the church, they decided before they left, they would go and check on the old man, and perhaps he could answer some of their questions about the site. When they returned to the cemetery, the old man was gone. It was at that moment that they actually realized what had been bothering them about their initial encounter with him, and that was the entire time they had seen him, the old man, and his lawnmower, neither one made a sound. Apparently, the spirit who had made it his responsibility to keep the uh, to see to the cemetery landscape and even in the afterlife. Do you have a question? No, no question. Okay. Some comments. The uh, final cemetery spirit is known as the Lady in White. Uh, now, there's some conflicting theories about who the Lady in White is, but the most popular revolves around a woman by the name of Mary Whitbridge, who lived around the turn of the 20th century. Mary and her husband lived near the Copper River, and her husband needed to travel to Baltimore, some say for business, others say for medical care. But regardless, Mary did not accompany him on this trip. Now, on the route to Baltimore, Mary's husband fell ill, and he passed away. A letter was sent to inform Mary of her husband's death, but she never followed up with the coroner in Baltimore. So he was regulated to an unmarked grave far, far from home. Now, there's a very good reason why Mary never claimed her husband's remains. It turns out that the same day Mary's husband died at sea, Mary collapsed and died in their home. She was laid to rest in the Whitridge family plot at the Unitarian uh, Cemetery, and many people believe that their bond was so close that she died out of heartbreak because she just knew something was wrong with her husband. No matter what happened or how uh, she abruptly and tragically died, some say maybe she had an undiagnosed uh, health concern, but she never actually went to see a doctor because she was so concerned with her husband. Um, it appears that they were so much in love that they could not be separated even in death, and so they passed away on the same day. Uh, those who have seen the lady in white in the uh, cemetery think she is looking for her husband because the plot next to her grave remains empty. Yeah, very haunted cemetery down there in the heart of Charleston. Yeah. Now, we did go and see it, but we didn't go into it far because they was close to closing time, so we really shouldn't be in there at that point in time. Mm -hmm. But very beautiful. Yeah, we, it's, we, it's amazing. We did a lot of walking water down in Charleston. Yes, we did. So. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, lots of fee. We'll definitely get back there sometime and check out, well, a lot more because, yeah, there's lots Yeah, of we didn't actually go into any of the museums while we were there. We just walked the town. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, we got to stumble across all kinds of little historic tidbits, which were pretty neat. Yeah. And then one of the other places, this one, we uh, actually did get to go into. Was because, it Yes. Mm -hmm. On uh, the first night that we were there. Was second night. Second night. Second night we were there. We, we went on a ghost tour uh, by Bulldog Chores. Now, um, they're, they're a pretty big outfit. And i got to say, though, that they um, was very they good tour. They were a very good tour. Yeah, it was a very good tour. And um, um, They're the ones that actually run the tour through the, um, the jail. Charleston Jail, which we talked about when we did Haunted Jails before. Yep, so that's why we won't be talking about the Charleston Jail tonight. Yeah. So circle back and maybe get a little more dive into that another time. But mm -hmm. 
Yeah, we got plenty else to talk about with Charleston tonight. And uh, this next one, as we said, we got to go inside as part of the tour, and it's the Old Exchange in Provost Dungeon. Now, at the intersection of Broad Street and East Bay Street, it's one of the most historically significant buildings in the country, the Old Exchange Building. This majestic Palladian-style building was built in the late colonial era in 1774, and it was used as customs house and mercantile exchange. It also served as the political and cultural center of Charlestown. Of course, the building did not remain under the jurisdiction of the British Crown for long. It was there that the Declaration of Independence was publicly read to South Carolinians. South Carolina ratified the U.S. Constitution there. George Washington held banquets in the building's great hall. Finally, it was here below the polished hardwood floors in revolutionary-era beauty that prisoners were subjected to unspeakable tortures. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. (laughs) Beautiful place. Yeah, unspeakable tortures. The old exchange was actually built atop the old provost dungeon, which predates the beautiful structure by almost a century. From 1680 to 1767, Charleston was a walled city to protect the prosperous town from all sorts of invaders, namely pirates and the Spanish, with whom the uh, British did not get along with at all. No. The uh, Court of Guard building originally sat atop the dungeon, but was demolished along with the remaining high seawall in 1767. When you enter the dungeon, you can see, uh, what, uh, can see a little bit of what's left of that original wall. So under British control, American revolutionaries were chained to the walls of the dungeon alongside pirates and marauders. They were left to die from disease, injury, parasites, and rats. Because it was below the waterline, dungeons sometimes flooded, drowning the captives. The dead were often left with the living, uh, putrefying, and cycling, humid, stale air. Pretty nasty. (laughs) So, the whole building is allegedly haunted, though the specters upstairs in the old exchange are typically far less aggressive. Because the staff wear Revolutionary-era clothing, it's sometimes difficult to tell the living from the dead. Visitors have reported approaching who they believe is a staff member only to watch in horror as the staff, quote-unquote, disappears when addressed. In the dungeon, reports include the, the usual ghastly paranormal occurrences, such as moans, cries, and screams. Some have seen chains that restrict visitor entry being tugged or pulled at. A few unlucky visitors have even been pushed or choked. Upstairs is the Colonel Isaac Hain room, which has a story of its own. Colonel Isaac Hain was a member of the British Red Coast that switched over to the Patriots after what he believed was a violation of an oath of allegiance he made with the British Army. The British Army, well, in turn, considered him a traitor and arrested and sentenced him to death. Can't say I'm really surprised. No. But so his death sentence was to be carried out on August 5th of 1781. And there are some employees who believe that Isaac's spirit is still in the room that they held him in just 36 hours before his execution. Late in the evening after special events, staff members will open up all the doors to allow for free movement throughout the building as they clean up. However, they will find that the doors to the Isaac Hain room will abruptly close tight. The spirits are not only active at night, though. During a daytime uh, history tour, a paranormal investigator discreetly brought along his equipment, including an EMF detector, a spirit box, and an electronic voice recorder. 
They were all securely tucked away in his satchel, where he could keep an eye on them without making too much of a scene. Once the tour hit the stairs to the dungeon, however, the EMF detector did decide to make quite the scene. Throughout their entire time in the dungeon, the EMF lights were very erratic and rather eye-catching. He needed to adjust the device to keep other guests from, uh, from staring at the flashing lights. The spirits of the Provost dungeon were determined to not disappoint. Later, he went back to review the spirit box evidence. As he, uh, he expected for many of the words to be throwaways, as sometimes happens with the device, but the dungeon produced a litany of words and phrases like commit, cruel, he is guilty, violation. The words cruel and violation came through right around the time the tour guide was describing the conditions of the dungeon. You could say that the conditions were cruel and perhaps a violation of an individual's dignity. Rat infestations uh, and uh, rat, and, <clears throat> excuse me, in addition, rat infestations, women kept with men without privacy, water intruding over the top of the bricks in some, from uh, 1702, all of these definitely contributed to the cruel and violating environment, even by the standards of the 1700s. One other word stuck out to the investigator, Nick. Seems that the spirits of the dungeon were intent on calling out this investigator by his name. Yeah. They knew he was watching him. They yeah. did. So the, um, the guy that we had that evening that we were in the dungeon actually showed us a couple of pictures. Uh, the first one is in the entrance that you go into uh, for the evening tour. And somebody turned around at one point with, uh, when they were doing a training session with all the guys. And it said, take a picture of that. Now, there's a red emergency light there, and so it's, it glows red, and in there is a very distinct black shadow figure uh, following them. <laughs> so that was rather spooky to see. Uh, and then the second one was of one of the mannequins there, because uh, their owner of the current um, museum actually made a joke when he was visiting it that if this mannequin actually had his eyes open, he would buy the place. Well, in the picture that he took, the eyes were open, but in the actual mannequin, the eyes were closed because he's looking downward. Uh, so he actually kept his word. He bought the museum, and he now runs it. <laughs> so never promise something like that to the ghost. That's a pretty high-dollar uh, bet. Yeah, it is. <laughs> if this happens, I'll buy your building. Okay. okay. <laughs> You're on. Noted. <laughs> Uh, so just a couple weeks ago, we actually had done, what was it, about a month ago, we did haunted restaurants. Yes. And we actually, at that point in time, we already knew that we were going to be talking about this next location. Yes. So we did not feature it in the haunted restaurants so that we could share it with you now after we had a chance to visit there and, and go. And dinner. And yes, lunch. We had lunch. Well, it was 4 o'clock. Was it? Yeah. Oh, well, that's right. It was early dinner. It was early, early dinner. Because yeah. we had the tour that night. Yes, we had the tour and then we... And other stuff afterwards. Yes. Nibblies. Nibblies. And libations. That were provided by the hotel, which is wonderful. Oh, and we also went out as well. Yes. Or was that a different night? That was a different night. Ah, oh, whatever. Doesn't matter. That all bleeds together. It does. <sighs> anyway. Carrying on. So, Pugin's Porch, because this was asked about, and so, yes, we knew we were going to be going. Uh, this is a bright but tactful yellow exterior with the smells of delicious comfort food that are drawing you into the charming Coogan's Porch. The restaurant is famous for its pimento cheese fritters. Oh, my God, they were so good. We had them. Very tasty. Yes. And uh, shrimp and grits. And, of course, 
the locals and the tourists do uh, love coming there for a delicious meal. Now, Pugin's Porch is more than just a delightful culinary experience. The atmosphere is unique, charming, and it makes you feel right at home, considering it is actually in a converted Victorian townhouse. With seating available on your sunlit patio and your open-air porch or one of the cozy dining rooms, there's an ideal spot for anyone in this establishment. However, the uh, restaurant has a story that dives much deeper into uh, what happened in Charleston and just its menu. Uh, so let's talk about our actual location itself. It is a uh, stately home on Queen Street that was built 1888. It was part of an emerging, uh, emerging neighborhood of single-family homes, and over the years, a variety of families took residence in the home. However, one of the residents is far more famous, and that is Zoe St. Armand. Now, in the early 1900s, Zoe and her sister Elizabeth moved into this house. Uh, Moni compared this uh, pair to be a little unusual. They resided there by themselves. They were spinsters. And uh, it was not uncommon for this to actually happen at this point no, in time. It was not common. Or, sorry, it was not common. Yeah. Sorry. It was not common. It was very yeah. uncommon. I cannot read properly. <laughs> <laughs> However, as sisters, they lived together and it provided comfort and company to each other, and they were closely bonded. Uh, they were not a social duo, so they mainly kept to themselves. Now, Zoe was a school teacher at the time, and she dressed the part. She was clad in long black dresses and wire-rimmed glasses. She looked more like a Puritan than a Southern Belle, and Zoe didn't care for the uh, societal pressure of the beauty and standards of the South. Which probably also made her not like too well. Yeah, she just she did it. She went to her own drum. I mean, guys, guys weren't going to be speaking her up for marriage. Well, to put it simply, yeah, it's true. It's true, but also if she were to marry, she would be able to teach. Sure, those were the rules. Yeah. Time. All right. So Zoe and Elizabeth lived quietly in their home together for four decades. They enjoyed each other's company and created that bond. But that bond was sadly broken with Elizabeth's tragic passing in 1945. Zoe was devastated by the loss of her sister and best friend. She fell into a deep, unyielding uh, depression, and both her mood and mental health started to deteriorate very quickly without any companionship to help her get through the grief. She became so upset and delusional that she started to cry, cry out her sister's name while wandering frantically down Queen Street and neighbors became more and more concerned for her well-being. Finally, one of them made that tough decision and actually took her to St. Francis's Hospital. Poor Zoe lived out the rest of her days in the hospital, likely tortured by the loss of her sister and being away from their shared home. And her, uh, she actually did pass away at the hospital in 1954, so almost 10 years after her sister. Her body is buried alongside her family just north of downtown at the St. Lawrence Cemetery. As time marched on, the home that Zoe and Elizabeth shared was swept up in a wave of Queen Street residential properties that transitioned to commercialized buildings in the 1970s. Many of the spacious houses were becoming shops and restaurants, including the St. Armand residence. The home was purchased by Bobby Ball, and uh, as a court reporter, uh, he was brought to, sorry, she was brought to uh, Charleston from West Virginia, but she always wanted to open a restaurant. So she set to work remodeling this home on uh, 72 Queen Street into becoming the perfect restaurant in her mind. So one day, Bobby was working to transform the home, and she looked down and discovered she had a surprise visitor. Despite the paranormal nature of our talk, um, this one was four-legged and furry. 
And uh, he arrived uh, and became Bobby's new companion, and he was a sweet Wheaton Terrier. He was a stray dog that often wandered the neighborhood, and the porch of Bobby's property became his favorite resting spot. He would watch Bobby work on her renovation from the porch, occasionally being rewarded with small morsels of treats. Bobby fell in love with the scruffy pooch and lovingly named him Pookin. They formed a bond, and uh, that actually uh, became more special because she named her restaurant after him, Pookin Porch. Uh, that opened up in 1976, and she um, actually would have him stay out on the porch, or he would sometimes walk through the restaurant greeting um, the guests and uh, getting scratches and getting food stuff to him underneath <laughs> the table. Uh, unfortunately, in 1979, Pugin did pass away. Uh, he was nine years old at that point, uh, and uh, she buried him right out front by the uh, restaurant's porch, so you can actually see his grave as you go into the restaurant today. Yeah, as soon as you step off the sidewalk to the front walkway, it's, it's right up, there. It's right there immediately on the right. So you yeah. can pay your regards to Coogan on your way in. So you can even buy a stuffed Coogan animal. <laughs> they do sell them. <laughs> now, regarding Saint, uh, uh, Joey St. Armand, she didn't, even though she didn't uh, pass away in her home, she has returned to it. Uh, it seems that Zoe. Uh, does, has not found peace yet. So she is desperately still searching for her beloved sibling. Both employees and visitors to Coogan Forge can hear Zoe calling out her sister's name. Uh, and she's not only content to be heard, she actually will shock women who have uh, seen her in the ladies' room. They will take one last glance at the mirror before returning to their tables and sometimes see Zoe standing behind them. Many don't realize that her lifelike image is a ghost until they learn of her story. Uh, then they understand that they actually came face-to-face -face with her in the restroom. Bobby has had her own encounter with Zoe. Uh, she actually um, was closing up one evening. She's not sure if Zoe was trying to tell her that she was angry about having the house transformed into a restaurant or just wanting to make her presence known. Uh, but she heard a loud, abrupt chaos sound. And uh, what she discovered was the hefty wooden uh, stool that they put up onto the um, tables had clattered down to the floor. And as she looked around, one of the heavy wooden doors also uh, opened and then slammed closed. Employees have also reported hearing sounds around the restaurant, especially upstairs. When they go to investigate in the second story, it's completely empty. They've also heard mysterious voices and felt an eerie feeling coming over them. When they turn to look around, there's nobody behind them. And it's not if you're in Coogan Sports, that you can actually see Zoe, the uh, guest staying at the hotel across the street, um, actually has reported seeing her in the second story window. She's actually desperately hitting the upstairs windows as if she's trying to escape the building and can't. They had actually called the police when they see her, and the police arrive, do a search of the building, they find that the alarm's still set, nothing has set it off, nothing's disturbed, and there's no female on the second floor when they get there. Now, over the years, uh, various staff members and customers uh, also have um, run into Zoe, and she has uh, frightened them so much that they have run out of the restaurant screaming, absolutely terrified. Others have just been creeped out by the presence that they have felt. Uh, so it seems like Zoe's not going to leave anytime soon. No, she seems to be settled in there for the long haul. Yes. Yeah. Now, it's not just Zoe who's there. Pugin is there as well. Uh, people will 
you'll also see him on the porch where his favorite spot was, or he will actually um, come in and find some of the younger children who are eating there, and he will actually wander towards their table, sniffing the ground, hoping to catch some snacks that he used to get from underneath the table. Uh, and he actually rubs his fur against their little legs as they're dangling at the tables and uh, basically begs for food from them. <laughs> so um, he's kind of a fun. I, would, I wish we could have seen him. <laughs> yeah. That's a Zoe story is kind of sad. It is. So hopefully she can find some peace someday. Or maybe at the very least make friends with Boogan. Yeah. Mm. Mm. What? Drink. 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 So this is a building we walked by, but we didn't get a chance to go into. Yeah. One of the many museums that we yeah. just didn't quite have time to uh, duck into. And, oh, look at Merlin's here. Hey, Merlin. Hi, Merlin. How are you? Oh, glad you could, uh, glad you could uh, check in with us here tonight. But yeah, so yeah, our next uh, next location it's uh, over at Let's see, where is it? I don't know. We walked in crisscross town so many times. We did. It was, it's not over by the jail, is it? No. It doesn't matter too much. No. It, it's, it's a very small building. You could easily overlook it. But it is also in a fairly prominent location. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot around it. Yeah. So, uh, but anyways, we're talking about a powder magazine. Kaboom. Yeah, kaboom. So you might consider a powder magazine as a necessary risk when it comes to warfare. Powder needs a strong and secure place to be stored and to be safe not only from the enemy, but also the elements. On the flip side, such a structure is by its very nature a prime target, and an explosion at a powder magazine will be devastating not only for the military, but also for anyone remotely close to the structure. With this in mind, Charleston's powder magazine is an 18th century engineer's work of art. While one might argue that Charleston's powder magazine was no more or less secure than any other powder magazine, this one was designed to not devastate the community at large, should the worst come to pass. Yeah, I haven't actually heard of this design anywhere else in any of the, definitely not in any of the forces mm -hmm. Yeah. So the building was designed with very few doors, first of all, so that an explosion would have a very hard time escaping outward uh, you know, into the surrounding community. But the roof itself was designed to kind of give away and actually funnel any explosion directly upward away from that surrounding community. In addition, the roof was loaded with sand that would not only help to dampen any explosive force, but would also collapse back in on the remaining structure to help extinguish any lingering flames. The best safety practices available for the era were put in place to keep everyone as safe as possible. Fortunately for Charleston and the Patriot cause, the powder magazine survived the revolution intact. After the war, the powder magazine served as a storage building in general, not just for powder. The colonial dames of America wanted to keep it in the impeccable condition that it was in, and the building was purchased in 1902, and they turned it into a museum in 1972. This is when it also became a part of the National Register of Historic Places. The museum is a very popular attraction, and many credit the building's resident ghosts with that ongoing popularity. So it is a pirate museum in Charleston, so you'll learn about Ambani, you'll learn about uh, Stetton and, uh, you know, the fun history of Charleston with the pirates. It'll be near the top of our list when we go back. Yes. Yeah. So 
the first spectral tale starts with Gabriel Manigault. I think I got that right, Manigault. Mm -hmm. During the Revolutionary Era, the Manigault family was one of the richest families in Charleston. Gabriel lived a varied life as a rice planter who studied law and also managed to become one of Charleston's most famous architects. Good luck trying to dabble in all that trifecta today. <laughs> it was often said that Manigault had an eye for all of finer things in life, particularly wine. He would spend hours in wine, in the wine, in, excuse me, in wine cellars, taking in the aroma and sipping at his beloved beverage. At one point in time, the powder magazine served as a storage facility for Gabriel's family, including their extensive wine collection of wine, meaning that Gabriel spent quite a lot of time there over the years. <laughs> While the makeshift wine cellar is no longer at the powder magazine, it is said that Gabriel's spirit lingers on where he spent so much time enjoying his favorite spirits. Unintended. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. <laughs> I wrote that line. Moving on. He is clearly distinguishable by his period clothing and the confidence with which he walks the halls for the, uh, watch, walks the halls of the structure, often late at night. They like to say they have no idea what he could be looking for, but I think we all know. Again, cheers. Amongst the calamities and tragedies that punctuate Charleston's history during the American Revolution, the lingering spirit of a man who is searching for a nightcap is a welcome point of levity amongst the often dark chapters. Yeah. So actually, I said that was the first one. It actually was the only one that we had for well, the Well, there's a second one where we're putting that ghost with another theme. Yes, because, yes, editing. Editing. And thinking ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So... As the only one for the powder magazine they will be sharing tonight, we'll have more for you in the future. We're not going to stop doing these anytime soon. Nope. Back to you, or? Find an explosive sounds like danger. Maybe a little. I'll tell you what, you do the next one, and I'll do the last two. Okay. There you go. Because it's theater. Give me the theater. Of course, I'm going to give you the theater. <laughs> Wine and explosives sounds dangerous. <laughs> Agreed. I'll say big All right, so Doctor Theater. Uh, this is not located on Dock Street, but so you know it's on Church Street. And it's uh, another quirky fact about it is that the structure was actually an antebellum era hotel, originally known as the Planters Hotel, that was constructed in 1809 by Mr. and Mrs. Alexander Calder to what we say constructed, the quote. Constructed. <laughs> uh, is actually misleading because it was an endeavor that was more of an extensive renovation project that converted several small buildings into one big, huge building uh, that already existed on the location. So the name of the hotel was actually an homage to its guests. Most of the people who stayed at the planters were actually nearby planters. During the horse racing season, the planters from the Midlands of South Carolina would journey into the city to catch the races. After playing the ponies, many of the planters were too tired to trek back home or otherwise unable to travel the distance. Cheers. They've been drinking. The successful period would be followed by a series of calamitous events. In the 1860s, the Civil War left very little unscathed in Charleston, and what wasn't outright destroyed was often neglected. 
due to lack of use or in favor of more pressing needs. The Planters Hotel was no exception. The once luxurious hotel actually became a victim of the city's strong economic recovery in the years after the war ended. And as the neglected hotel started to fall out of favor, the structure faced further damage as a result of the devastating 1886 earthquake in Charleston. The needs of the building had become too great for any one man in Charleston to take on, and without the slightest bit of hope, the people of Charleston were forced to just turn a blind eye to the once great hotel, and it was left to decay to become another forgotten relic from the antebellum era. By the 1930s, the Panthers Hotel was long gone, and the building was in desperate need of repairs. So the city works, uh, excuse me, the city and the Works Progress Administration took on the task of restoring the majestic and historic structure. The project not only helped preserve this important chapter of Charleston's history, but it also provided work for many of those who were crushed by the Great Depression. This said, the structure was never to be a hotel again. As construction began, an additional structure was added behind the hotel featuring both a stage and an auditorium. And the building was set to be reborn as the Dock Street Theater. This is not only a rebirth for the building, but also for the Dock Street Theater name itself. The name was taken from the theater uh, in, the 19, excuse me, in the 1730s that once stood on Dock Street, which is now known as Queen Street. And that the original Dock Street Theater from 200 years earlier was the city's first theater. Yeah, so, so just, to, just in case you're trying to get yourself oriented in, as to where all this stuff is in Charleston, you're going to have to look it up. I couldn't tell you. You have to look at several different maps. <laughs> from several different eras. They have yeah. moved, everything's moved all over the place. It's the, like Richmond. They actually filled in land, and what was Dock Street now got pushed way back because they built so much. Yeah. And, like, for example, the the, the, um, the old exchange and, uh, used to be, like, right on the shorefront, but now it's several hundred it's, yards yeah. from the shore. So, yeah, it's so kind of crazy. got renamed. Renamed, moved around, all kinds of good stuff. Nice and nice and confusing. Yes. <laughs> so, like any good theater, it's got ghosts. Of course. Because it has to. But they're not all related to the theater. This is the fun thing. They're actually related to the hotel, the ones we're going to talk about tonight. And these are the um, two that are most um, most often seen. Correct. Yes. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> and yeah. <laughs> Yeah, neither, neither one of them have anything to do with actually the modern theater. No. They, they date back to... They're connected to the building, not to the theater. Yeah. So the first one is the ghost of who they believe is Junius Booth. Name sound familiar? Last name should sound familiar. One of these two specters, as I said, is Junius Brutus Booth, the father of the infamous presidential assassin. Etu Brut? Etu Brute, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, he ever ran in the blood. Now, not quite sure, we are not quite sure why his spirit has returned to the Dock Street Theater, but his troop actually did stay when this was the Planters Hotel. There's no particular strong tie between Junius and the Dock Street Theater, except for perhaps of one incident where he actually tried to kill the manager of the Planters Hotel. That's some strong emotion there. Apparently, um, a murder and or attempted murder run from the family. Apparently. Mm. Some might argue that this just might be a case of mistaken identity, but the spirit uh, might not be Junius at all, but perhaps an actor who doesn't want to leave the spotlight. No matter what, the spirit uh, is around the stage and in the neighboring hallways, 
and they've reported seeing him when the building has just a few lights on, and some have even physically felt his presence around their necks, which is why they actually think it might be Junior, because he tried to strangle the manager. But he does have a deep love for the theater and is intent on sticking around for as long as he cares to. Yeah. So. He's not going to be leaving of his own volition anytime soon. No. The next ghost that they often see is Nettie. Uh, now, of course, some, uh, they claim that this is Nettie Dickerson, and many believe that she might just be uh, a nameless woman, and they just decided to call her Nettie. But uh, Nettie actually lived in Charleston during the 1800s, and she could usually be found at the Planters Hotel. She was not a guest nor a member of the staff at the Planters Hotel per se. You see, Nettie was a bit of a freelancer. She was... Well, let's just call her a lady at the night, because that's what she was. Now, she was uh, seen gliding around aimlessly throughout the Dock Street Theater. Those who have caught a glimpse of her claim that uh, they actually see her tattered, yet vibrantly colored red dress, and that's how they know it's Nettie. But how did she come to haunt the, the Dock Street Theater? So during the planters' heyday, as we said, it was a place where wealthy men of Charleston would congregate, the planters. Uh, this was where you were free to drink copious amounts of alcohol, gamble away a small fortune, and, well, have an extramarital affair. So the ladies of the night um, were here, and one of them was 25-year-old Nettie. It's believed that she was a country girl who dreamed of city life and arrived in Charleston sometime in the early 1840s. Nettie's reason for coming to Charleston was to find love and excitement. But unfortunately, she lived in an era where 25 was considered well on the shelf and you were not going to get married. Wealthy men in Charleston were looking for young brides who were still in their teens, and they were not interested in somebody considered to be a spinster. Aside from Nettie's age, her social status was also a factor. Back in the day, it was very uncommon for people to marry beneath their class, and this was doubly so for the elite of Charleston. It might be hard to believe, but that's thinking actually still swirls around parts of the city today and their social circle. Yes, there is still some very, very uh, elite, secretive uh, yeah. Yeah, circles. If you there. don't belong in their circle, you're not considered one of them. Okay. So Nettie actually uh, had her, her dreams crushed for a better life and happiness, and she began looking for work. She became a clerk at St. Philip's Episcopal Church. She took to the job very well and got along with great. But nonetheless, she did not feel like she belonged. It was impossible for her to compete, and she could never truly be accepted into Charleston's high society. She grew tired of trying to get ahead in Charleston and quit her job, despite the priest's efforts to sway her from doing so. He begged her not to lose heart, but for her it was too late. Her spirit had been crushed. With the money she would have been able to save from her job at the church, she went to the most upscale store in Charleston and bought the most expensive dress that they have. It was a gorgeous, bright red dress. And with that, she actually went, uh, put it on, and went to the Planters Hotel with the intent to catch the eye of any man who saw her. With this new mindset, her looks and the red dress, she adapted very well to her new profession as a lady of the night, but she was still bitter at society that refused to welcome her, and she actually continued to go to church every Sunday. While she was there, she would run into one of the many women who was a wife of one of her customers, and she would, they would actually 
cast lights at Nettie's direction, and she would boldly confront them and their husbands. Well, you can imagine that did not bode well for her. It actually caused her to lose several clients. An indiscreet lady of the night doesn't maintain a lot of clients for long. Yeah. Bad, but it's just, well, it is what it is. There's a certain way to do it to be successful, and she was not. Nope. So, as you can imagine, many of her clients and customers quickly left her, and she became pendulous. In a moment of deep distress, Nettie snapped, and she went out onto the second-floor balcony of the planters in her red dress and stayed there despite a storm brewing. She began shouting and disparaging marks against trials in high society, even as the storm intensified. And the priest, who still cared for her, rushed into the street, tried to reason with her to get her to go inside, and it was said that she hollered down to him, you can't save me. And as fate would have it, a bolt of lightning struck Nettie right after she said that, and she died. So while the Planters Hotel is long gone, the spirit can still be seen at the Dock Street Theater, the red dress, thus the tattering because of the lightning bolt. I'm sure that dress didn't look too good afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, many of the actors uh, who have shows there actually have seen a woman walking in this red dress. She glides along the floor, and they say that she is not beautiful. Um, many describe her face as a zombie-like, and others have said that it looks like something out of a haunted house. Some of the workers here have also said they see her during the day, but she comes and goes for months at a time. Yeah, so just when you think that she might be gone, all of a sudden she'll, she'll, be, back. she'll be back. And she'll decide to like, make herself nice and comfortable again. We'll see her for days, if not weeks on end, before she goes on hiatus again. Yes. But, yes, that is the story of Nettie. Nettie. And you can actually get tours of the Dock Street Theater. Um, Which they weren't offering when we were there. No, but when COVID. non-COVID happens. COVID. <laughs> Someday. Yes. Someday. So, we're going to go to one of uh, Charlton's uh, notable institutes of uh, higher education now. We are going to uh, go to a location that's been around for more than 244 years. Uh, and if you've been around for that long, you're bound to have a skeleton or two in the closet. Or in the case of the College of Charleston, uh, it might not be skeletons, but you're going to have some ghosts. Oh, yeah. So the College of Charleston, uh, there is a College of Charleston alumni named Ed Macy, who graduated there back in 91. Who, that sounds like a long time ago now, but I'm starting to realize that my own graduation is closer to his and my own graduation is closer to today. I'm getting older. We all are. Uh, Anyways, carrying on. So he has done research into the proliferation of poltergeists in Charleston and co-wrote a book about the subject called Haunted Charleston, Stories from the College of Charleston, the Citadel, and the Holy City. He found that ghosts have made a home on the College of Charleston campus. The Joe E. Berry Residence Hall, which was constructed only as recently as 1988, was built on the site of the old Charleston Orphanage House. According to records, its infirmary was overflowing with sick children during the Spanish influenza pandemic back in 1918. The children who were not sick were sent outside to play in the yard. One day, a couple of children playing outside found some oily rags and started a fire on the orphanage grounds. The fire spread quickly, causing the evacuation of the building, but unfortunately, 
excuse me, unfortunately, four of the orphans died of smoke inhalation. Now we fast forward to 1991, when the College of Charleston opened the doors of Barry Residence Hall. Not long after students moved in, the hall was plagued by a rash of false fire alarms. Students then reported hearing distant voices and laughter of children late into the night echoing down hallways and through the courtyard. Some students also said that they were awakened by the sound of marbles cascading across the floor, only to find none. Perhaps the strangest thing is that some students reported that they have heard the voices of children chanting, ring around the rosy in early morning hours. That's just creepy. That is ugh. Considering that you have already the plague. Yeah. That's creepy. Yeah. <sighs> Macy says he first heard about the phantom children when he was a senior at the college in 91. While he was doing research for his book, he interviewed many people who heard the, about the same strange occurrences at Barry Hall. He says, I have spoken to at least 40 people, mostly female students, who have not only been awakened by the alarm and the singing, but have seen old-fashioned cursive writing on their bathroom mirror, says Macy. So there are still apparently some of the orphanage children that uh, can be all too glad to uh, call the new residence hall their new home, even though it uh, was decades after the fact. So, Probably much better up there. I'm sure it is. <laughs> but, yeah. So just goes to show that you can have instances of spirits that do get well attached to not only a structure or something, but, but the actually land. Uh, the land itself. But yes, yes, uh, Trina. Yeah, at least the uh, at least the children do seem happy. Yep. Um, you know, for for what it's worth, there is that, uh, even as tragic as their story might be. Sorry, my sleep schedule's off. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the investigation on Saturday night. We didn't get to bed until like three o'clock. And it didn't help that the neighbor's alarm went off at midnight last night. Yes, it did. That high wind. Apparently, they failed to lock their back door, and the wind blew their back door open, setting off the alarm. Police, screeching alarms. Yeah, it's dead asleep when that happens. <laughs> Had us up for a little while. Anyway, we do have one more location to talk to you about tonight. Now, this one, this is fun. Yeah, this one you're not going to find in books because we actually um, talked to a local shop owner, and she, once she discovered that we owned a ghost tour company, she was more than happy to tell us stories. Yeah, so we were wandering around, and we pop into the shop. We ultimately wound up spending at least an hour there chatting with her, yeah. very delightful woman, but kind of getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. So, uh, now, just so you know, this shop, Beth and I, we have a soft spot for old print and antique maps, uh, and we seek out dealers of these uh, unique pieces of art whenever we travel. So, yeah, we go to the market, if there's a special shop. Um, there's one down in Savannah, for example. We've been to. Oh, God, we love that shop. We pop in there every time we go. And we seems, find so many things there. This being the first time we were in Charleston, first time we found this place, but we'll be sure to pop back in sometime. Yeah. Now, uh, now Charleston, so they did not disappoint us when we stumbled upon Carolina Maps and Prints, which is a lovely little shop situated on a section of Church Street known as Cabbage Row. Now, as we perused the well-curated collection that the shop offers, we had the opportunity to... Oops, there we go. Sorry. Uh, there we'll pop up here. We had the opportunity to strike up a conversation with the current owner, Laura, who started with the company back in 1985. It turns out that she wasn't shy about sharing her spirited tales when the subject of ghosts arose. 
As a matter of fact, she had some tales to share with us about the company's original location and one on the property where the business resides today. Now, regarding the original location, it was on the modern King Street, which was, the, uh, which was and really still is, the epitome of Southern charm. The road itself dates back to the very beginnings of Charleston when it was really little more than a way in and out of town, but as the city matured, so did King Street. Today, the corridor is lined with eclectic specialty shops and delightful dining options, all set on the backdrop of one of Charleston's most historically and architecturally significant streets. It is here that Carolina Map and Prince got its start at 188 King Street over half a century ago as a shop simply called Carolina Prince. The original Carolina Prince was a relatively large store on prime real estate with large display windows that looked out over one of Charleston's busiest intersections. When Laura came to work with the company, it was owned by a man named Raymond. Being a smaller company, it was almost like being in a family, a feeling that we can understand here with our Haunt family, our guides, and all that. So, yeah, very much, very tight-knit community. And Laura had a lot of respect for Raymond and her other colleagues. So when Raymond passed away, it was quite a blow to all of them. However, it seems that even though Raymond was no longer amongst them in the flesh, he was certainly amongst them in spirit. Raymond had apparently decided that he was not yet quite done with the shop that he owned, and the employees, including Laura, would see him going about his business on numerous occasions before his spirit would fade away before their eyes. The presence of Raymond's spirit came to be an accepted thing amongst those who knew him, and while his appearances might be a little jarring, they came to be something that was not quite terrifying, or that was not terrifying by any measure. This level of acceptance did have an unintended consequence, though, particularly as new people came into the shops to work. On one occasion, a new framing guy was working in one of the non-public spaces upstairs above the shop floor. Laura was down in the shop when the framing guy came downstairs looking as though he had seen a ghost, mainly because he had. It seems that Raymond chose that time to get a little work done in the same space where the framer was working. The framer was startled enough at first to find that he wasn't alone, and he nearly fainted when his unexpected colleague disappeared before his eyes. Mind you, he also moved the hammer that the framer was working with. Yes. Which really freaked him out. <laughs> really freaked him out. It seems that nobody had mentioned to the framer that he might just encounter the deceased shop owner while he, while he himself was actually going about his business. So Laura went on to tell us that she didn't only see Raymond in the old shop on King Street, as she related a story that was, that was as interesting as it was unique. Now, one afternoon, Laura was having lunch with a client at one of the many restaurants in the area near the shop. They were seated right at the front of the restaurant with a clear view of people going about their business on the sidewalks of Charleston. As they were chatting, Laura looked out to the street, and there was Raymond walking down the sidewalk just as he would have done on many occasions during his life. Well, Laura had seen Raymond's spirit in the shop, to see him on the street was something new and startling. Then things got even weirder for Laura as she watched Raymond, a Caucasian male, suddenly shift into the form of a black woman. There was nothing out of the ordinary about the woman aside from the fact that just a moment before she had looked like Raymond. Laura was stunned, and this must have registered on her face as her client commented, you look like you have seen a ghost. Very appropriate given the circumstances. Now, 
this is a really kind of very odd oh, story, and I had to do a little digging into this. Um, now, there is some precedent for it, along with a couple of explanations for what Laura saw. Now, first, we could be talking about a case of actual spiritual possession. Stories of possession span the globe, all over the place. And while most of the stories we hear today do not involve any real significant physical transformation, there are stories in some cultures that do. Whether this change in appearance is truly physical or merely some sort of projection can be debated, but it seems to be something that is not unheard of. Second, there is a more clinical and somewhat less satisfying explanation, at least as far as our chat goes tonight. And it could be that the loss of Raymond and his subsequent spectral appearances at the shop had Laura's mind primed to see him. Now, I am not a psychologist, but if I do understand this correctly, they classify it as a form of kind of disassociation that is not uncommon in those who have experienced stressful events. Given the experiences that multiple people had in the shop, I'd like to believe that Laura did have a genuine experience with seeing Raymond on the streets of Charleston, but we, it is fair we have to go ahead and mention both possibilities. Yeah. Kind of a very interesting tale in and of itself. Now, Laura does eventually assume ownership of Carolina uh, Prince, and the world at this point in time was quickly starting to change. The proliferation of the Internet changed retail forever, and as the needs of the business and their clients evolved, in 2001, they downsized their footprint and rebranded the recurrent Carolina Mass in print. As we noted before, this lovely shop is where we got to meet Laura, and while the spirit of Raymond seems content to stay behind on King Street, that's not to say that Laura's new shop location at Cabbage Row was without its spirit. Cabbage Row is a fairly compact spot. The row if you will, is actually just a single structure that houses a couple of address, addresses along Church Street. And it also possesses some notable history. Uh, it was built back during the Revolutionary Era, and Cabbage Row comes from the original commercial use of the building. Later, however, the building would serve as a residence for many free African-American slaves, with as many as 10 families at a time calling the three-story structure home. In the 1920s, Dubois Hayward, a Charleston native who called Church Street home, wrote a novel called Porgy, in which the title character called Cabbage Row home. You might be familiar with the opera Porgy and Bess that was inspired by Hayward's novel. Hayward did take some artistic license with the Cabbage Row name, as he called it Catfish Row in the novel to better reflect the location's close proximity to water. Now, whether you call it Cabbage Row or Catfish Row, the structure's African-American history strongly figures into the spirited activity that occurs on the site, particularly in the carriage house that stands behind the main structure. On multiple occasions, people outside the carriage house have reported hearing people talking inside using the Gola language. Upon closer inspection, there is nobody in the building. Now, the Gola language is also called Sea Island Creole. And it's an English-based language spoken primarily by African-Americans living on, living on the seaboard of South Carolina and Georgia. Gola developed in the rice fields during the 18th century as Africans from across the continent were thrust into the horrors of American slavery. While they came from the same continent, they often did not have the same native language, meaning that on North American soil, their only common language is English. These slaves and their descendants took aspects of their own native languages and English and gradually modified and melded them into what became known as the Gullah language. 
At one time, it would not have been uncommon to hear Gullah being spoken around Charleston, but to hear it today will get some attention, particularly when there's no one around to say what was actually just heard. Today, Gullah is considered an endangered language. It's believed that there's only a few hundred people that still speak it as their primary language, and their numbers continue to dwindle as development continues to progress along the South Carolina and Georgia shores. It's probably only a matter of time before you can only hear it spoken amongst the spirits of generations past. Yeah. So, very interesting story that we, had, that we got from uh, Laura there. We appreciate that for sharing it with us. And if you ever get down to Charleston, we recommend you pop in at our shop. It's a really uh, cute little shop. and um, She's online, too. She, yes. She says the majority of her business is actually done online, and she ships prints yep. and maps. Um, but, yeah, she's a fantastic woman. Uh, so Glenn had a comment there. Have we ever heard of the doctor? Doctor. I vaguely recall this. Uh, I can't remember if it was because it was on our tour or if it's in one of the books that we um, got that I'm currently reading through for more stories related. Yeah, it was not on a tour. I can, I can say that. Because I remember sure. there was the doctor, but that was the grave site that I was standing on, which we took the picture of, and you saw I had mist behind yeah, me. Yeah, that was the, that was at the cemetery. So, yeah, it was not on Church Street. Okay. Um, but yeah, it could very well be in one of the books because well, we picked up like five paranormal. Um, we picked up quite a few books because that's what we do. <laughs> well, they weren't all paranormal. There was some history ones yeah. in there too. But still, um, still, it's enough to ensure that we will have uh, most definitely have another Charleston episode, uh, a Charleston part two down the line, or who knows, maybe we'll mix them in with we'll other mix them in with other stuff because well, as we said, we didn't talk about the jail tonight because we talked about the jail before. And there's a lot more there that um, there's some cemetery, other cemetery ones that are kind of unique. So. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah all, kinds of, uh, all kinds of fascinating stuff down there in Charleston. Beautiful city. Yes. And, of course, we need to get to the plantations. And I keep promising they haunted plantations episode, which I need to work on at some point. Yeah. But we actually have the next couple episodes lined up already? Yes. At least two weeks from now. Yes. Two weeks from now, we are doing witches. Yes, we are doing witches. We're looking forward to uh, chatting about witches. And uh, we finally have settled on a kind of a format because there's so many different ways that you can talk about witches. Yeah. Um, There's, of course, um, far too many, for that matter, um, cases of acute, you know, wrongly accused witches. And men. Huh? Women and men. Women and men. Salem, Massachusetts. Yes. Not well, even Virginia. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. No, don't, don't get me wrong. Salem's just the most Yeah, it's the most common. And we will actually mention. No, we've got those ones out. That's right. We cut Salem because we're going to do a actual Salem episode okay. at a later date. So despite the fact that we're talking about witches in two weeks, we will not be talking about Salem witches because we will be talking about the Salem witches along with everything else in Salem. And on another episode at a later date. So we are going to be talking about American witches. Yes. So I didn't go abroad. <laughs> Mole Dryer from Leonard Town. Yes, she is in there. There you go. We got you covered. <laughs> yep, we got Mole Dryer. We got the Pirate Witches that I hinted at before. So, yeah. We got the Bell Witch. Uh, we got the Bell Witch. We got the Hunger Witch. There's another one in there. I can't remember. I have to edit the hell out of it. Yes, you do. Because it's over 11,000 words right now. There's probably going to be a Witches Part 2. Because no, I took it down. There's a witch's part two. Okay. When I took the Salem stuff out, I got it down to within the seven to eight thousand. So the one time that we did a ten thousand plus word episode of this, we were on here for well over an hour and a half. 
Extruded and bought a crown and baked into cakes, but you passed around. 